Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Would you please stand one more time for the reading of the word? In Genesis chapter 11... Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. They said to each other, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if, as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that's why it's called Babel, or Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word this day and that you'd anoint our, our hearts and our minds to receive, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, need to mildly apologize to you. I mentioned last week that this service would be a little bit different. I'd be having some friends helping me out with that. There's some things that have moved in this last week in my thinking that I'm pushing that off. And so this is a message that was not supposed to be delivered, but is going to be here instead. This is going to be one of two parts, frankly. The first one here is entitled, uh, For the Kingdom with a Question Mark. The second one will be not next week, because next week we have a very special guest, Steve Garrett, a good friend of mine fantastic uh, um, worship leader and teacher, and he's going to be here. We take a little break from our uh, um, origin series, and so he'll be here next Sunday. I encourage you to be here for that. And then the following week will be for the kingdom with an exclamation point. But today, for the kingdom with a question mark. For those of you just tuning in or catching up, um, we are in a series entitled Origin Story. Our purpose is to go through the entire Bible over a season of time, but for right now, we're beginning with the book of Genesis. Uh, we all have an origin story that's rooted here. What motivates and shapes us as human beings? What drives us? Uh, what's the beginning of who we are? And we find that in Genesis. This passage today, the Tower of Babel, because we can't do all the scripture entirely all the time, was going to be skipped over. Um, but again, I'm going to dwell on this here a bit today for a specific reason. I am really deeply looking forward to Wednesday morning. Amen? Some of you aren't clearing into what I'm saying. Um, the election's Tuesday. It's over then, or at least for some counting. So Wednesday, um, my mailbox will again be empty going forward. 
Um, I, I, have, I have what I'm increasingly calling hate mail uh, because uh, all the material is not over positions or arguments or statements. It's pretty much all about how horrible everybody else is. Somebody after first service said, it's funny, everyone's against bullying, all these politicians are against bullying, but they're all doing it to each other. You know? um, and so... You know, we have this whole thing. And you should vote Tuesday. You should be involved politically. Um, that's fine. However, I have seen increasingly, especially in this last several years' time, divisions happening within the body of Christ that, that I find just terribly painful. Um, whether it was a separation over COVID or whether it was, you know, mask or no mask. You know, you're righteous or unrighteous, depending on who you talk to. Um, ethnic divisions. Uh, political divisions and I've seen entire churches change um, membership because so many of the people have moved on because of one thing that was said or one thing that wasn't said a church in this area that had never gone past a hundred or so people in all its years of existence suddenly blew up to 2,000 people um, all, practically overnight because the pastor began his message every Sunday with a 10 minute political diatribe with a far right statement and so all people flock to that. We find a division within our country today. And thus far, we as a church have navigated this. Thus far, we've had minimal separation from that. I, my prayer is that this would continue. And to that end, um, I, I, I wish us to have an understanding um, going forward of what the scripture would say in regards to this. Now, it's not always been this divisive within our country. I want to show you a quick video clip, and it's nonpartisan. Uh, I'm not supporting any specific position with this. Um, but Ronald Reagan was running for his second term. And at that time, um, Reagan, I think, was 73, which at that time was the oldest president I think we had had up to that point in time. Um, he was against Walter Mondale, uh, who was 56 at the time. And so there's questions about his age, uh, that being Reagan. And so this was one of the more brilliant points, I think, but also gives you a little snapshot for those, especially those of you who are younger, who, who have not understood a time when the country could actually discuss things in a reasonable fashion. Just take a quick look. I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all, Mr. Truitt, and I, and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> Now, that to me just was one of the most brilliant moments in time there. And uh, I like aspects about Reagan. At the same time, let's be frank, Reagan also had some scandals during his season of time, and uh, he didn't answer holding seances in the White House, whatever. Uh, I'm not trying to promote any of that. What I'm trying to have you see, though, is this. What catches me in looking at that clip is Walter Mondale's face. He laughed out loud. He thought it was the funniest thing he'd heard, and it was. It was brilliant. They, they, they respected each other. They had starkly differing positions and views for the country, but there was a respect this seems to be some of the things that increasingly we have um, lost within our country here today. Um, Democratic Party and the Republican Party, just to pick two of the parties that are in place, um, only developed in the 1820s, 1850s. Uh, and they were not as polarized as they are now. It used to be that you had liberals and conservatives in both groups, and they would cross lines to achieve certain things for their ends. 
It wasn't until the 70s and the 80s the two parties became increasingly more narrow and separated. Until now, one party overwhelmingly represents what is viewed as conservative values. One party represents overwhelmingly what are called liberal values. And depending on your position, increasingly they are demonizing those. So depending on your position, you find one word, liberal or conservative, to be a curse word, depending on your position. But there are aspects of both that were rooted originally in something that was good. There was a Christian writer recently I came across who um, I think speaks well to this. He says the conservative impulse can be defined as seeking to cut with the grain of the world as it is, given all of its dangers and shortcomings. Conservatives are generally not idealists. They see the world as it is and all its difficulty, and they try to get others to see the world the same way. Because the conservative impulse seeks to come to terms with an imperfect and often hostile world, it values order, repentance, structure, safety, morality, rules, justice, individual responsibility, self-restraint, and accountability. And perhaps above all, the conservative impulse values strength, insofar as strength is the effective agent that protects and secures all the other virtues. This is why politically conservative people tend to valorize, make valiant, the police, firemen, and military, because all of these, in their best forms, are meant to provide safety, security, and stability in the midst of a dangerous world. The liberal impulse, on the other hand, can be defined as seeking to progress beyond the world as it is into the world as it should be. Liberals are much more likely to be idealists. They don't want to settle for a broken and harmful world. As a consequence, they value and try to get others to value compassion, equality, dignity, fairness, patience, unmerited grace, care for the marginalized, and community responsibility. And perhaps above all, the liberal impulse valorizes love insofar as love is the final and ultimate goal of all the virtues. This is why political liberals tend to value racial empowerment and concern for the poor, because they reflect what the world should be like, even if it isn't. And so in sum, the writer says, the conservative impulse insists that we come to terms with the world as it is, and all of its shortcomings and hostility. The liberal impulse insists that we must imagine and work towards the world as it should be, in all its ideal potential. Those are both positive attributes with godly elements to them. What happens is when they are separated from one another, when the conservative impulse is severed from the liberal end of a new world, or when the liberal impulse is severed from the conservative foundation of the world as it is, that we end up with the world that we have now. And then we end up with justice without mercy, truth without kindness, accountability without compassion, and so many other factors that can be part of that. These items separated from a biblical basis end up being ends in themselves, and so conservatives reach for power by itself. And a liberal will embrace love without any aspect of boundaries or guidelines or direction until it becomes a twisted, both become twisted um, versions of the reality. If we can begin with this understanding and what comes next in this conversation, then we can understand that political diversity within our congregation is an indicator that we're coming together around something higher than politics, that we're bonded by our loyalty to Christ over and above our loyalty to any political party. Now, with that as the premise, 
I want us to go into this conversation today now that we find in Genesis, in this origin story. Something that we're going to move past, but I think is very important that we don't. The whole world had one language we find in the scripture. Most language types say that that's the case. That everything seems to evolve from a central language. Language itself is a real argument against evolution because they're complete structures. And some of the sounds that we make never translate into language that, w- that would have made the sense of it was evolutionary. So I won't go into that in detail, but there's a good argument that that could be made for that. So one language. They moved eastward, they find a plain there, and then they settle. They'd been told by God to go and fill the entire world. But they settle instead. And as they zero down into things, um, they decide that they're going to change some things. That they're going to build a tower. They're going to, and this line here says in verse 4, they said, come let us, track that, but notice, let us, and I try to emphasize as I read it, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we, it's all self-centered. It's all about their pride. It's all about themselves. It's basically, the tower and everything else is a reoccurrence of Genesis chapter 3 where they said they would be like God and Satan tells them they'll be like God. And so they're going to try to establish their own identity, their own name, their own purposes in rebellion against God. And so they build this tower, and it was probably a ziggurat type thing. We see these throughout the uh, ancient world. And at the very top would have been a little shrine for worship or a place to study astrology. And so they're going to establish to do this. It's all wrapped up in themselves, and it's all wrapped up that they would have a name for themselves. It's pride and it's arrogance more than anything else, as well as rebellion. In verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the people were building. The Lord said, if... As one people speaking the same language, they begin to do this, then nothing they do is going to be impossible for them. If man's rebellion this early has already started to develop in such a way in this united and godless effort to establish themselves in this huge enterprise that would eventually dominate God's creation, then what else could happen if humanity stays united in this proudful attempt to take its destiny in its own hands, in this man-centered effort to seize the reins of history? There'd be no limits the damage that could be done. And so then God says, and it's a contrasting thing in verse 7, where the humans said, come let us build this. There's a phrase in verse 7, come let us, God says. And there's a plurality there implying trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit, come let us go down and confuse their language so they'll not understand one another. The coming down phrase implies that there was possibly even a pre-incarnate presentation of Christ in that moment that comes down and walks the streets. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth and they stopped building the city and that's why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world from the Lord scattered them from all over the place. The idea that they would be like God, the idea that they would establish their own name, the, the pride, the power that they desired. When that pride, when that desire for power invades the church, we are caught up increasingly with our identity and our allegiance being to something that is sourced in Babel than something that is sourced in God. We're bound in our loyalty as Christians, as those who are called to Christ that there would be no other loyalty, no other allegiance, no other identification that would ever supersede ours to Christ or what the scripture calls and Jesus called the kingdom of God. 
that there is a kingdom of this world, that there are structures of this world, the kingdom of man, if you will, the place of Babel, rooted in pride, rooted in separation from God and rebellion, and there's the kingdom of God, which is a different thing, and that's where we're supposed to find our allegiance. I don't know if you've noticed, but, but whether it's, it's left or right, everybody that's running wants to be a fighter for you. So-and-so is going to be a fighter for you. So-and-so is a fighter for the middle class or a fighter for the lower class. You don't hear too much about fighter for the upper class, but there's fighters all over the place. Personally, I'd like to have a thinker for once and say, I'm a thinker for you. But we don't have that. We've got fighters. Name recognition. That's the most significant thing, which is why you see the signs everywhere. We go into the voting booth, and we don't even know their positions, but the name has been drilled into our heads so many times that we go for the name that we're familiar with over the one that we're not. And even in the church, it's become that way oftentimes. The name is what's promoted. I have friends that that have ministries that are named after them, and I understand why, and I don't condemn that. I can say for myself, I just can't see that personally ever. I I would be really cringy anywhere to hear of of a Randy Tomko Ministries. I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow that. Okay? (laughs) I just wouldn't. Um, I, I just think there's dangers within that that, that um, I wouldn't want to be a part of. For me, others can navigate that perhaps. I like the fact that we're Rock Point, that we're a mix of people, that we have a different racial mix here, we have different ethnicities here, we actually have different languages depending on where you may run, from, from Tagalog to, to Spanish to Russian to Ukrainian to other languages that you'd hear, Italian, everybody. Um, this is who we are. We come from backgrounds of, of those who are well-off to those that are very poor. We come from backgrounds of those who are very educated to those that aren't. And yes, I'd like to think there's even a, a, a spread of political positions that can be taken. Now, there are biblical items that deal specifically with issues, whether they be of abortion or gender issues and ideology, that type. Those are biblical issues that that we should understand and you should understand why those are biblical issues and not necessarily political issues, though they roam into that way. But with the rest, we can have a spread. These people wanted to build a name for themselves. It was all about them and what they would establish and some were some clever politicians, and not all politicians are bad. Some are good, and it can be an honorable position. But these guys weren't, and they gathered them together to create what they were going to create. We found a contrast with this and, and a reversal of this in two places. First in John chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus has this lengthy um, prayer and, 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 and saying some of his final words to the church and his followers saying, I'll remain in the world no longer, but they, he's talking to his father, are still in the world, talking about us, that we're still in the world. We can create all the subsystems that we want, but the reality is we are in this world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, Jesus says, so they may be one, even as we are one. He's reestablishing the unity, but no longer coalescing around pride and arrogance and the the kingdom of man rooted in Babel, but now a, a kingdom of God rooted around himself and centered in humility. Now, one of the translations particularly catches me because at the one point here it says, Father, um, protect them by the power of your name. It actually comes out as, Father, keep them faithful to the name. The name you gave me. Keep them faithful to the name. The name you gave me. 
It was at Antioch that, that Christians were first called Christians. They saw these people running around, following after this Christ figure, and they had all these little Christ. They're like a bunch of little Christs all over the place. Let's call them little Christs. We'll call them Christians. And so we literally bear the name of Jesus Christ. And he's saying in this that they could be that we could be faithful to this, to this name. This is the reason why this message is entitled today, Kingdom or for the kingdom with a question mark. Because the question I have to ask you today is, are you for the kingdom? Is the kingdom of God the primary culture with which you live and breathe? Is the kingdom of God your first allegiance or identity before any ethnicity, before any social position, before any political position? So the question is before you today, out of the word of God, for the kingdom, question mark? Tuesday's a few days away, but Wednesday morning's coming. And when Wednesday morning comes, you're going to be facing the same coworkers you've argued with for weeks. You're going to face the same spouse, hopefully, that you've been arguing with for weeks. You're going to have Thanksgiving dinner with family that maybe you have completely split over a political issue. Tuesday will pass. Wednesday's forever. <laughs> or at least it can seem that way at the holidays. <laughs> if these things are our primary motivator, then where do we end up? Boniface, an uh, um, English monk from years ago, said, The church is like a great ship being pounded by the waves of life's different stresses. Our duty is not to abandon a ship, but to keep her on course. And we don't find that course correction in the Tower of Babel. We find it in John 17. And this idea of the, of the church being one, of the church having its first identity in the name of Christ that we bear, took deep root in the church. I mentioned there was a second point. There was a second point. The day of Pentecost, when, when suddenly everyone's able to understand others' languages. It's a Babel reversal. The idea that the church is established on the day of Pentecost is powerful. It wasn't just about the unifying under the kingdom of God and no longer the kingdom of man over humility, over pride, but it was also saying that languages, again, would not be a barrier to us. It was a very prophetic moment. This rooted deep in the church. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, we see in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And then this line, which is one of my favorite lines forever. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. This was not denying the binary of male and female. It was not saying that you cease to be a slave or cease to be Jewish or Gentile. It was saying that those identities were no longer the central identity. It's saying that those were, were things that could be set aside and that there was to be a coming together of a unity at the table of communion and at the cross of Christ. It doesn't say these things don't matter. But it says there's something that matters more. And how they treated one another changed dramatically. When a, when a slave and a master came to Christ, suddenly the slave is working in a way, and the slavery was different than the American experience. Save that for another time. But, but the slave would respond a different way to his master, and the master would respond differently to the slave. That men and women who, who the divisions already were wide enough and, and would be demeaning one another or, or ridiculing one another, usually the men demeaning the women and the women ridiculing the men. 
meant that there was to be a coming together, a healing of what was broken in the garden, relationally. But the one that would have jumped out the most of the people reading this passage was Jews and Gentiles. These were deeply rooted ethnic differences. These were deeply rooted political and religious differences. The idea that the Jews and Gentiles could come together as one was, was, was blasphemy to the Jews and ridiculous for the Gentiles who could have cared less in certain ways for this. But these individuals had had an encounter with Christ and in doing so, they came together and there was a unity that overcame their massive differences. This is a personal aside right now for a moment. We were involved with as a, as, a, as a church for over five years with the country of Russia before and, and after communism. We were actually, several of us, in Moscow when the Soviet Union fell and I saw them tearing down the statues of Lenin and we worked with churches and we worked with, with guys who had been in the gulag, who had been in prison for decades coming out and then seeing their grown-up children for the first time. 30 years later, they'd suffered great under persecution. I love the Russian people. I think what's happening in Ukraine is absolutely horrible. And I think that Russia is wrong for what they're doing. Everything politically and geo, geopolitically and, and morally and everything else in me says this is wrong and needs to be corrected and addressed. It's not a correct thing that's happening there. Having said that, though, does that mean that I hate Russians? No. I love the Russian people. And especially those who are followers of Christ who are in that country. We ministered six hours away from where the fighting is going on right now. Some of the kids that I would have talked to and ministered to in high school, they're not in this conflict, but their children are, are probably in this conflict from Krasnodar. Does it mean we can't take a stance and say this is wrong or this is right? Of course we can. But the idea of hating people, of treating them dehumanized, is something that shouldn't enter into this any more than it should enter into our political conversation. As we go into the, the study, this idea of people becoming one was huge. Jesus spells it out even more clearly when he's being um, uh, addressed by Pilate and he's brought before him and Pilate says, are you a king? Because if you're a king, then you're, 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 there's a rebellion issue we're going to have to kill you. And Jesus says, is that something that you thought of or, or someone else? He's like, am I a Jew? You know, I don't, I don't care about this. Your own people are the ones that brought it up. So John chapter 18, verse 35 and 36, and Jesus says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Yeah, I'm a king, but it's not of this world. It doesn't threaten you. Not in that way. It creates a much more profound, deeper threat of ideology. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Which means there's different methods that we use as followers of Christ than the, the world uses. Someone is upset ways back because I was addressing um, Christians who were doing violent political actions. And why wasn't I focusing on these others who were doing violent political actions around the same time? And my, my, my response to that is simply this. The ones who were doing those violent political actions that I addressed were claiming to be Christians. They were pronouncing the name of Christ as they were doing their violence. The ones who were doing the other violence were burning Bibles. They weren't claiming to be Christians. They were being human beings. And while I can condemn that wholeheartedly, and while I'm offended by it wholeheartedly, the ones that, that bother me the most are the Christians. Because we're supposed to be expressing something different. 
And when Tuesday's over and we engage our coworkers or our family members or our children, what is going to be remembered? What will stand and who do they see when it's all done? Jesus moved in this political environment. His environment was violent with politics. In Mark chapter 12, verse 13, 17, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. He's teaching about the kingdom, and they come and inject politics from the moment. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. What they were saying is they were buttering him up. They were flattering him. Charles Spurgeon said to pastors, said it's always best to not know nor wish to know what is being said about you, either by friends or foes. Those who praise us are probably as much mistaken as those who abuse us. And Jesus knew enough as well, too, to not be caught up with that. So instead, he responds to them um, as they inject this moment. He's pushing away the flattery, but they, they throw the, 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 the hottest item of the day into his lap. Pharisees and Herodians, they were two different political parties that actually were opposed to one another, but they came together to attack Christ. Sadducees and, and zealots. The zealots were kind of like a mix between Antifa or KKK, depending on what you want. They were the violent ones that would blow up everything. The Sadducees were more to the left. They, they, they were trying to embracing Rome so they could manage things still, whereas the Pharisees were opposed to all that. They were the conservatives. There was a mix of the spectrum, and they were all violently opposed to one another, but they found a unity together to come against Christ. Why? Because Christ and his ideology of the kingdom of the world, a kingdom of, the, of, of, of God, challenged everything. The church, being the church, is a huge threat the church being another variation of the world is no threat at all. Not at all. But the church having identity in Christ and the kingdom of God before anything else threatens everything. And so they came to him and they're trying to trap him in this and they throw the hottest issue. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Is the right to pay taxes, but it's the imperial tax. The, 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 the Roman citizens didn't pay this. Only the people who had been subjugated by Rome paid this tax. It was a symbol of oppression. Should we pay or shouldn't we? And Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? If he says, yeah, pay your taxes, oh, you're a tool of Rome. Don't pay your taxes. Oh, you're in rebellion against Rome. We're going to report you. So he has this moment. Bring me a denarius, one of the coins. Let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Brilliant moment. They go away completely puzzled. He's teaching about the things of God. They're trying to inject a political note into it. Again, we should all be politically savvy. I love discussing politics, getting all the digs of that, but at the end of the day, that's not my identity. And if it overwhelms what I'm doing in my discussion with someone, then I'm projecting something wrong, and I need to correct myself on that. But here he's teaching the kingdom of God. They try to inject this in. He takes the coin, and he says, whose image is on there? And you see the image of the emperor. It also would have talked about his divinity. On the back, it would have said Pontifus Maximus, saying he's the high priest. He would have taken this and he says, give it back to Caesar if it's Caesar's. What he's saying is, whose image is here? 
If it's Caesar's, then that belongs to Caesar because he's the one that, that his image is stamped on. He's the one that minted it. Give it to him. And if it just ended there, that would be enough. But he goes on and says, give to God what is God's. What is he saying? Remember, he started with the image. And because the image of Caesar, it belongs to Caesar. So what is it that belongs to God? We've said it early on in this conversation, weeks back, that we, every human being, left, right, whatever ethnicity we ever, all are made in the what? Of God. So I'm sitting here saying, hey, whose image? Caesar's? Then give it to Caesar's. It's his. In other words, guys, and this is going to offend and hurt all you conservative types, pay your taxes, okay? But he doesn't stop there. He says, give to God what is God's? Well, what is God's? It's you. It's me. It's those of us who have been stamped with the image of God. We should give ourselves to God because his image is stamped on this. We give the coin to Caesar, but we give our life to God. And any time the state asks something that belongs to God alone, we say, no, that belongs to God alone. It does not belong to the state. It belongs to God. Because we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 14, and 19, in verse 8, we said, For it is by grace we've been saved, through faith. And this is of ourselves. This is the gift of God. And then in verse 14, For he himself is our peace. And he's made these two groups, these hostile groups of Gentiles and Jews, the left, right, whatever. They destroyed the barrier, the dividing water of hostility, and brought them together. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. We are fellow citizens. You could walk around here, you can hear Spanish spoken, you can hear Tagalog spoken, you can hear Russian spoken, you can even hear Canadian spoken. Okay? But we're all one in Christ before any national identity before any ethnicity, before any politics, we're run. This stuff has crept up so slowly on us that many of us don't even realize that our identity may have shifted to the kingdom of man and not the kingdom of God, that we're actually walking the halls of Babel instead of walking the ways of God. We bear the image of God. And, and, and when God says, come here, I want to take a look at you. And he says, what do I see? He says, I see his light. He says, he sees my, I see my likeness in you. You're made in the image of me. You're like a coin. You're, you're, you may be dirty and rusty and nasty looking, but a penny is still worth a penny. And you're still worth something to God because his image is stamped on you and you belong to him. So the only way to render to God the things that are God's is to give your entire life your allegiance, your identity with him. Does this mean we can't be involved in the politics of the day and the time? Absolutely. But it shouldn't overshadow and it shouldn't separate us. It shouldn't divide us. Don't get focused on some mistaken word that I say or some argument that I make or someone else makes to divide and tear apart yourself and the fellowship. The enemy loves to go roaming around and snap that up. That we're to be one. We have thus far navigated this mess. But I think that, that this is going to get much rougher as time goes by. And the question is, will we continue to hold faith 
to the one who saved us. We will continue to find faith with one another despite what differences there might be. There's an old film. I don't know if you've ever seen it. A River Runs Through It. Anybody seen that one? It's worth looking at. One of Brad Pitt's early works. Ladies, check it out. <laughs> it's an autobiographical novel of Norman McLean, and he chronicles two brothers coming of age in Missoula, Montana. Beautiful background. The boys grow up under the stern teaching of their minister father, a guy played by uh, Tom Skerritt, I think it was. The, the preacher, the pastor, teaches his sons about life, grace, and love through the art of fly fishing. As the boys mature, though, they follow very different paths. One's very straight and narrow. The other one's pretty wild. They find that fishing is the one bond that draws them together still as adults. And thus the title of A River Runs Through It. It was not so much a description of the land that they were in, though it's true, as much as it was a description of the recurring theme in their lives. When everything else failed, when they got into conflict, when they went different paths, they could always go back to the river and bond with their love of fly fishing. That drew them back together again. I'm reminded of that as I'm having this conversation today. And if I could pick a title perhaps for the Christian community experience and for our fellowship, it might be that a cross runs through it. That when all else fails, when all the other conflicts come into play and our identity is, is shredded and torn and, and pulled apart and we're, we're eager to get into the fight or to post something or to, to do something else that will drive it further, that we can come back to the cross and bond around our love for the one who died for us there that we could go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, when our eyes are full of all the other junk that we're seeing on television and, and media and everywhere else, and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, that we could choose to walk away from the Tower of Babel that's all about us and we and ourselves and our pride and our desires for self-sufficiency and rebellion and it could instead embrace the ways of Christ and the kingdom of God which begins with humility and laying our lives down. This morning we're going to take of communion together probably one if not the ultimate symbol of Christian unity so much so that the church is often referred to as a communion of faith if you're not a follower of Christ you haven't made that decision just let it pass you by no harm no foul don't take of it if you're not committed to Christ it's not a good thing this is not a social moment this is a deeply spiritual moment so if you have not made that commitment don't partake but for those of us that have, that have said, no, the kingdom of God is our primary allegiance. We have been saved by grace, not by ourselves. That we walk with humility before his face and take of this. And there'll, there'll be a, the bread in the bottom cup and the wine on top. And all we ask is that we hold it until we take of it together. But as we prepare ourselves for this moment of time and this act of worship, I ask you the question, Are you for the kingdom? 
Go back in your head with the conversations with friends and family in this political season and time. Think of words you've said about other ethnic groups. Think of things you've said about other politicians and, and anger, things that you may have posted. Go back in your mind and ask the Holy Spirit to challenge you and, and, and resolve this question. Are you for the kingdom? So, Father, this morning we come before your face. Lord, for some, as we approach this question, we have to say we have not really been that way. We've gotten caught up with the passion. We've gotten caught up with the power. We've gotten caught up with the politics in such a way that move beyond the issues to, to actually fomenting hatred or anger against somebody else that we didn't even know a lot of times other than by a name. It has not exhibited your ways. It's been the obnoxiousness of Babel. But Lord, we seek the healing touch of Pentecost that would unite us as one. We seek the beauty of John 17 where we'd be one in your name. And Lord, as we look at the coins in our pocket, we would render to Caesar and to the state that which is the state's. But there's our lives that are yours and yours alone. I pray that our unity would not be shattered. And I pray that in the conversations we have, as emotional as they may get and as passionate as they may become, that people would first and foremost see us as Christians, that we would be quick to listen and slow to speak and that our words would be seasoned with grace in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray and the church said